Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. That weathered old seafaring pipe smoker is back, and boy does he smell bad. Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I'm your host, Brian Levine, back home again. Yeah, it's been uh, four weeks since I've sat down and recorded, and now I'm back home again and uh, on the microphone. And on this week's show, uh, in Pipe Parts, we talk to Ash from the Chaps Guide, and we're going to talk about watches. And then my guest is uh, Fred Hanna and more of uh, the discussions with Fred. And this one's a hot-button topic. Uh, One question. It's one question for the whole segment. And then uh, music, and we'll start working our way through getting caught up on the mailbag and a uh, rant. All that coming up on this week's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Remember, you must be of legal smoking age wherever you are in order to listen to this show, so stop if you're not. Uh, We'll get all the technical stuff out of the way. Please, iTunes, Apple Podcast ratings and reviews, much appreciate those. And uh, JDRF auction items since I'm back. Well, you know what? Email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. We are looking for anything pipe and tobacco related or anything that, uh, you know, might be small enough for uh, Steve to ship easily. So that's a consideration there. Email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, and we'll get those gathered up. Remember, we're probably going to run the auctions, uh, I'm guessing, in June. So a couple months out. All right. uh, Lots to get through in this show, so let's get the show rolling. Everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and this time for Pipe Parts, again, we're going all the way across the pond to jolly old England with uh, with our friend Ash from the Chaps Guide on YouTube. And Ash, I one of the ways I found your videos was uh, from my fascination with watches. And uh, we're not we're not talking about um, Apple watches or digital watches we are talking about the fine time pieces um and you've done several videos on them so obviously a a a hot topic for you but first of all let's just begin what was do you remember your first fascination with swiss watches yeah i mean i think i've always enjoyed a wristwatch um Mostly, I think, because as a as a as a gentleman in the modern era, we 
Oh, I, I, I subscribe to a sort of old mindset. I don't wear jewellery, so I have to say. I don't, I don't wear a ring. I'm married, but I don't even wear a wedding ring because I, I don't like wearing rings as such. Uh, and, you know, if you think about the way that a gentleman expresses his personality, there are very few ways in the way that you dress that, you, that can bring a little bit, a little sneak peek of the sort of person that you are. Um, typically, for instance, if you work in an office and you wear, I don't know, a, a grey um suit for instance two-piece suit white shirt tie everybody else is going to be dressed in a similar fashion what draws the little things out from a gentleman who is cut from a different cloth perhaps are those accessories you know and the wristwatch being primary amongst them so i liked i, I like wristwatches generally um, i'm not a snob at all i mean I, I i do favor a certain brand but uh you know, I like a watch because of the fact that a gentleman has chosen it as a reflection to a degree of his personality. And uh, it's something which certainly dresses your outfit and adds that cherry on the top. And that, uh, and, and the the watch, the what was your first watch that really, that you, that you said, okay, this is the one, this is the first one that I want and I need this. Where, where did it all begin? Okay. Well, I, I, I got to go way back. I mean, I remember I was six. Uh, my mother taught, I think I was six, but my mother taught me to tell the time. And she said to me at the time, if you, if I can teach you the time this weekend, I will buy you a watch. <laughs> so I, I sort of went for it that weekend, put the effort in. And my mother bought me an Ingersoll wristwatch, which is a largely forgotten about brand now. I believe it's still in existence, but it was a mechanical watch. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking about, about 1975, 76. Mm -hmm. So it was a little wind-up watch. And from that point on, I, I understood the relationship between a person, a man, and his watch, particularly a mechanical watch, because it takes interaction from you to give it life. If you don't wind that watch, it's not going to do anything for you. It relies upon you to fulfill your part of the contract between man and watch for it to do its job. And I built a relationship with wristwatches from that point on. Now, I was never, ever in a position to buy a nice watch. Uh, you know, and actually, when I got to my sort of 30s, mid-30s, I wore functional watches because I had jobs which required me to know the time. But I would wear, you know, inexpensive wristwatches in work. Uh, but I never bought myself a nice watch. And I got to a point when I was in my sort of mid to late 40s. Um, I was uh, coming up to mandatory retirement age in my profession. And I thought, unless I buy a nice watch now, I'm never going to have one. And the watch which sang out to me was, and it's, you know, it's, it's a cliche. Everybody does the same. It was Rolex, the brand which obviously has been marvelously marketed over the decades and has a, has a heritage and history which I found quite interesting. I liked the look of the watches. I knew they were functional and tough. So if I bought a particular watch, that that would last me the rest of my life and I could pass it on to my son as well. And the first watch I ever bought was the watch on my wrist today, actually. It's a, it's a Rolex Datejust, 36 millimeter, stainless steel with a blue face. And uh, didn't intend to buy it. On the day I purchased this watch, I was it was my father's 88th birthday. <laughs> and we were walking down the street in a neighboring town. Uh, my mother, my father, and my young son I glanced in the window of a jeweler's and I saw the watch which I had been thinking about visualizing for years. It was there in the window, brand new in this authorized dealer's window. And I thought, I'll just go in and try it on. 
to see if it looks good. That way I'll know if I'm, you know, harboring this desire for a watch, which would look nice. So I went in and I made that classic mistake as a customer of putting the watch on my wrist and discovering <laughs> that I loved it. So uh, I, I made the call to the wife, of course, the boss, and said, you know, I've got a birthday coming up. Let, let's think about what I would like to have. And the, one of the reasons why this watch is of special relevance to me is because when I bought it, I sat at the table and uh, my father was to my right on his 88th birthday. I was in the middle there and my young son was to my left. So there were three generations of, uh, of my family there. And, you know, my boy will wear this watch one day, hopefully. So uh, it, it was a bit of history in the making. Yeah. Now, for a gentleman or for a chap, uh, there are different watches that you need for different occasions, correct? Yes, I would go with that. I mean, un unless you're, you know, you, you don't, it's not necessary. You don't have to spend a pile of money to get, you know, a, a dress watch, for instance. So if you're a gentleman who predominantly wears a suit and you dress to a high sartorial level, um, maybe a watch, as I'm wearing today, I'm wearing, a, I know the folks can't see it, but it's a, it's a stainless steel watch, stainless steel bracelet. Mm -hmm. um, I think I could, I do wear this watch with a suit, uh, but perhaps many gentlemen would prefer the more traditional look of a leather band uh, with a suit. So you may want to own a dress watch. You may want to own a utility watch, which is good for everything else, which I would suggest would likely have a stainless steel bracelet because they're waterproof and very resilient and very tough. Uh, if you're a gentleman who takes part in sports, you might want a, a you know, a, a multifunctional watch, like a, a sports watch. Um, I do a bit of running. I wear a Garmin sort of uh, smartwatch, so it tells me how fast I run and things like that. So there are different watches for different uh, elements of your life. It depends how much money you've got to spend. <laughs> but you don't have to buy a diamond-encrusted solid gold in order to stand out, because then you would go back to what we talked about before, where you'd be more of a dandy and less of a chap. Oh, for sure. I mean, if I was going to say one, one risk, somebody actually asked me a question the other day in a video I did, and they said, what would be your one watch that you could choose? And I had to think about it, but not for too long. And my mind immediately went to probably the, the most best dressed man I can think of. Fictional character, of course, but it's James Bond. Mm -hmm. And James Bond, over the eons, I mean, I know today in the modern era, James Bond actually wears an Omega wristwatch because Omega pay millions of dollars to put their watch <laughs> on his wrist. Yeah. But the the actual, you know, the, the earlier character of James Bond, played by Sean Connery, Roger Moore, and all of the earlier characters, he always wore a Rolex Submariner wristwatch. And it is a marvellous watch. I own one myself. And it is a watch which, through its association with Bond, um, I think is really something that you could wear day to day. If you're on the beach and uh, you know, you're just wearing your, your swim shorts, there's a watch on your wrist. If you, if you wear a submariner, which is water resistant to a thousand feet, very functional. If you're wearing your, you know, your, your jeans, casual t-shirt, that watch also fits the bill. If you're semi formally dressed, that watch fits the bell there's nothing this watch can't do but very unusually for a watch which is predominantly steel in appearance because james bond wore it with black tie and white tie over the years it's almost given sort of permission for this watch to be worn across the entire spectrum of a gentleman's wardrobe and i think that's one of the few watches which can pull it off you know wear it in any situation and it's always the right watch to wear 
Now, if you're if you're wearing a watch like that, though, then and you're wearing dress cuffs, then you also have to be careful that the watch fits under the cuff because you don't want the cuff to be jammed up on the on the watch. That's very true. Um, you know, if you're wearing a French cuff or a double cuff, whatever you wish to call it, uh, yes, they they do have they do fit a little more snug to the wrist. However, that said, if you're having if you are a really sartorial gentleman uh, and you're having a, a shirt um, bespoke manufactured for you, so if you were to go to, I don't know, Tumble and Asser, for instance, in German Street in London, uh, when they measure you for that shirt, they will ask you what wristwatch you wear. And they will even accommodate the size of your watch to the cuff of the shirt that they will fit to that garment. So, you know, it depends on what your level of sartorial elegance but a proper chap should have a wristwatch on all the time, correct? Well, there's, there is a train of thought which would say that a gentleman wouldn't wear a watch at all with black tie or, mm. or, or the, the highest level of formality. Because why would you need a watch when you're being entertained by somebody or hosting somebody? So there is that train of thought that you know, a watch isn't necessary at the highest level of formality because it would be very rude, of course, to look at your watch if you were in a dinner party or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So you could probably leave it off if you were dining out. But uh, the rest of the time, I think, as I say, as men, we don't have the privilege of fancy handbags, high heel shoes, and all of these other fripperies, which the ladies get to wear. The sole item that most of us get to wear where we can display, demonstrate our personality is in our little wristwatch. So, you know, don't miss the opportunity to, uh, to show the world a bit more about yourself. Ash, thank you very much again. If you have a question or comment for Ash, go on to his YouTube channel, The Chaps Guide, or you can email me and maybe we'll uh, discuss it here on a future episode. But thank you very much again for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. Anytime. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Internet Radio. Since its beginnings in 1876, Savinelli has become more than just a pipe factory. It's become a lifestyle. From sourcing the finest Mediterranean briar and partnering with local artisans to acquire unique accents, to expanding their catalog each year with new innovative series, Savinelli produces high quality Italian pipes that serve as a reflection of your individual tastes. With a portfolio that ranges from rugged designs fit for the outdoors to elegant pieces destined for black tie galas, Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And remember, these are uh, this upcoming discussion. This is one question, and I'll split it up into two parts so that it'll fit with the with the breaks. Uh, but these are questions that uh, Fred proposed to me as uh, possible discussion topics. And we just took them, you know, we, we took them one at a time and we're playing them back kind of out of order. But this one got kind of um, heated and hot button topics. So here you go. Fred, this, this question may cause some problems for some people, but you wrote it down. So we're going to talk about it. Here it is. Yeah. Do you think that today's tobacco blend quality is as good as tobacco blends in the past? Why or why not? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Tell us everything was better 30 years ago and everything today is shit. 
Uh, okay, next next question. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I'm. Uh, listeners have to know if they don't know already. Um, I like old tobaccos, and I've uh, collected old tobaccos for you know well over twenty years. When I first heard about aging, because I I always you know suspected there was something about aging. And uh, in answer to the question, today's tobaccos do not seem to have the same quality, um, depth of flavor. Um, they uh, uh, are much more, how shall I say, when it comes to taste, thin. Um, that's a wine uh, term mm-hmm. where there's just not a lot of uh, body. Um, in a wine that translates in our language to not a a lot of flavor and uh, Latakia doesn't seem to be as uh, potent um, as it did in the old days Um, uh, the recent um, batch of Syrian which the famous batch which uh, was in the warehouse fire that Greg Pease and uh, Uh, Craig Tarler, unfortunately, um, lost huge quantities there. I think it was basically 2004 um, that happened. That was really good Syrian. Uh, I've seen Syrian of varying quality. Oh, and of course, McClellan had tons of that stuff because they didn't keep their, their share in the warehouse. So they had it for years and years after that. Um, and I'm fortunate to have a little bit of that that Mike so kindly sent me. I'll always be grateful. Anyway, so the the bottom line is that I'm very hesitant to buy a tobacco that's currently produced. And I depend on my friends who have smoked this stuff to recommend it because I'll almost never try it. But I also want to know that they know because I've been spoiled, man. What can you say? Um, I want to know that they know, um, what they're tasting. And if they say, Fred, you would like this and they know what I like and what I don't, then I'll take their word for it. But if I just hear somebody else say, this is a great tobacco so many times, I'm telling you, Brian, so many times I've gone and tried it and been disappointed. So I don't just, I don't pay attention to general, uh, opinions anymore. So let me ask you this, Mr. Hannah, uh, uh, Dr. Professor Hannah, psychologist. Um, How is it fair to compare a tobacco that's been aging for 10, 15, 20 years, or in some of your tins of tobacco, 50 years, 40 years, to something that has been manufactured in the last year? Because they were great back then. And I have a really good memory for taste. And I like if you ask me, for example, tell me about the taste of Dunhill Standard Mixture Medium, um, you know, in the 70s when it was still made by Alfred Dunhill. Um, I know what that stuff tasted like back then. And I know what it tastes like with, you know, 30 years of aging. And <clears throat> the flavors... Were, you open, Brian, I'm not kidding, man. 
you op- I remember back in the in the days when I was working there at the uh, the tinderbox in Toledo, that was owned by Mike Laura, my good friend. Although I haven't seen him in years, uh, we would open a tin of um, Dunhill, and it had this unbelievably rich, you know. Um, um, bouquet, nose, odor, flavor, you know, um, before you even smoked it. It was literally, um, I, I mean, it was had so much charm that you would almost swoon. It was an amazing smell. And we don't have tobaccos like that anymore. Um, there were, I love that smell in the McClellan's um, tobaccos that I feel that people who are somehow deprived of proper sensory apparatus interpret as ketchup and vinegar. <laughs> and it's certainly not. Even even Greg Pease um, told me once that there's no way that there's vinegar in, in McClellan's. And, of course, the, kept, the ketchup is just a sensory impression. Never hit me that way. I always thought McClellan's smelled like really good red wine. Um, the whole ketchup, ketchup thing was very puzzling to me at first. But anyway, the point is, is that uh, I know what those things taste like. I remember what those things taste like. I remember the flavors that filled your mouth and your nose and just made you swoon. And we don't have shit like that anymore, Brian. Damn it. Your question is very, very um, appropriate, you know. But I'm sorry. Those, those tobaccos seem to be gone. I remember back in... Uh, around 1982, there was a big controversy. Syrian Syrian Latakia is gone. We can't find Syrian Latakia anymore, and we're not going to see it again. Well, obviously that was wrong, but it was a big scare back then because Syrian Latakia was such a, a valued uh, commodity. And um, now it's gone for real. We have, There isn't a period, and... Um, I remember I've smoked different, you know, versions of Syrian Atakia that were not particularly impressive. For example, uh, 20 or so years ago, um, Samuel Gowith was selling Syrian Latakia in bulk. And uh, I, I smoked it straight several times. And it was, you know, just kind of ho-hum, you know. But that, that uh, batch that McClellan's was using that's in wilderness and there are other Syrian blends. Um, oh, that stuff is just magnificent. So, he, so, so here's my, here's my problem with this, with, with this topic or this question. Yeah. Every generation says, Oh, the music was better back when I was a kid. Oh, the cars mm-hmm. were better back when I was a kid. Oh, the movies were better back when I was, a, you know, whatever it is, everybody, so whatever age we are when we first hit that thing and discover it and really get to know it, that's when it was the best. And then as it goes on, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't continue to wow us as much. So I'm hitting well, I, I, I'm hitting the psychological point, but I then know. but then I also have a manufacturing and production comment to make. But I'll let I'll let you I'll let you jump in and now that I've poked at your psyche of you know get off my lawn, kid. Go ahead. (laughs) Here's what I think. I think that you must have an intimate relationship with the devil. 
Yes. Because you play the devil's advocate so good. I sold my I, I, I sold my soul to the devil and he's tried to return it twice. And he's he's paying you to be a spokesperson as far as I can see. Yeah. Anyway. Um, all right, so we got that figured out. Okay, so the point that you made is entirely accurate. You know, I could be an old man and say, oh, hell, this, this damn world's going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus Christ. Yep. Well, see, you know, we, we can all play that game, and it's true. But on the other hand, there are some decent tobaccos that are out now. For example, um, I like GLPs as Quiet Nights. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that that particular tobacco still has a lot of flavor. Um, I have a tin from 2019 that I'm actually holding in my hands right now. Really good tobacco. I think, I think some of those piece tobaccos um, are good. I don't want to uh, trash any particular brands. I don't think that's what we're here for. But on the other hand, um, I'm not going to say that something is good just to, what's the word, compensate for my old manness <laughs> and you know, that's stuck in the past. I'm sorry, I ain't going there. I have a memory, and uh, I smoked shit tobaccos back then. There were, there were tobaccos on the market back in the 70s that were absolute crap, and there mm -hmm. there's... Uh, I just think, and now forgive me, because you ain't going like this, but there's a lot of tobaccos out today that are absolute crap, and there's a lot more of them, percentage-wise, than there was back then. You're wrong, but go ahead. And I will interrupt the conversation here so that we can take this break, and we'll be back in just a minute. Take a look at your pipe rack. Are all those briars and mirrors constant companions in your rotation? Or are there some that you gravitate to more than others? Are there some that you simply don't smoke anymore? Through SmokingPipes.com's estate trade program, you can transform those underused pipes into immediate cash or store credit. Just send us your pipes and we'll unpack, inspect, and evaluate them based on extensive market research and over 20 years of experience. Then, we'll contact you with a detailed offer for your choice of cash or store credit, valid on any items in our vast selection of pipes, tobacco, cigars, and accessories. If you're not happy with our quote, we'll return your pipes free of charge to domestic addresses. It's that simple. Join the thousands of Smoking Pipes customers who have benefited from this program and start your trade today by contacting us at 888-366-0345. That's 888-366-0345. Three six six zero three four five. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and we will continue with the uh, discussions with Fred Hanna. Okay. So now, here's you here's are, my here's you are my not the first person to tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. Okay, I want you to know that. All right. So, so here's here's my problem though. In, go ahead. If you go back to well, the the number in 1972 was like 50 million pounds of pipe tobacco is being sold annually, and the 70s all this Balkan Sobrani was all over the place, and you know you you turn on a drinking fountain and it would shoot so, you know Sobrani white label out of it for free, you know. 
Whatever you guys Remember, are all. I was buying. I was buying that shit off the shelf off the shelf back in those days. Yeah. For two for two bucks a canister. Go ahead. But something. If this stuff was all that wonderful, why did pipe smoking just drop like a rock over over uh, thirty years or forty years? If it was so good. Why didn't every pipe smoker just deviate over to that and stick with that stuff and then keep that stuff in production? Because all this stuff that you're talking about that's wonderful has all gone by the wayside. It's all gone the way of the dodo bird. And as far as I know, the dodo bird can't sing, dance, or bring you breakfast cereals, so that's why it got extinct too. Well, yeah, but the dodo bird had an excellent pipe collection i don't know if you're (laughs) everything was a ring grain it was a perfect ring grain (laughs) that's right um the answer to your question is great but it's inappropriate and it's it's not (laughs) yeah the answer to the question is is that there was a lot of extenuating circumstances going on in the world that made these tobaccos go away because of yeah. you know economies and governments and all that stuff, but you know you yourself said the immense the immense um, you know volume of tobaccos that was sold back in those days and almost mm-hmm. all of that was aromatic. Oh yeah, still yeah, still mostly aromatic it, it, stuff that we wouldn't stuff that we wouldn't bother with back then or today. And I actually and, think today's aromatics are better than aromatics oh, were I in agree. the past because oh I agree yeah. Yeah, there, there's fewer people making them, and only the good survive. Um, yeah, I, and but the reason for the decline of pipe smoking, I do not think, was in the quality of the tobacco. I say if it was all that great, like you old people say it was that great, you'd think everybody would be hanging on to it for dear life, and there'd be riots and protesting on the streets. And but Okay, no. so let me ask you a question. Yeah. How many contemporary tobaccos do you stock up on tobaccos that are currently available on the shelf or on on the internet why i'm glad i'm glad you i'm glad you asked because i've talked about it i think in the past where i'm looking at you know some of my aged tobaccos i will send them to steve fallon and if it's a you know 40 a 50 gram tin of something that's aged and i might get i'm turning 50 grams into 200 grams by sending it to steve fallon getting the money and buying four new tins or five new tins Five new tins of what? Of other stuff. Uh, currently, uh, you know, Escudo is still enjoyable. The Sutliff Crumble Cakes are still enjoyable. That la- The last batch of the Cornell and Deal Carolina Red Flake with Perique that came out, I really like that and the batch before that. And I'm buying them and I'm aging them now. Okay, so let me ask you a question then, mm-hmm. um, Brian. And I, I can't wait to hear your answer. <laughs> were, were there, for a percentage of um, great blends that were available um, in the old days, and remember, I don't think that, I don't include the old days for, you know, like 1980s and 70s. Um, I'm thinking about McClellan's as the old age, uh, too. When did they go out? Early 2018? Yeah. Yep. Right? And... I think those are the tobaccos of yore as well, because those were in, in good. Mm-hmm. There's many times that I've opened a uh, tin of, of uh, McClellan's English of one sort or another, no joke. And you know how the 
um, the sensation, the olfactory senses, you know, in the in the nose, are so powerfully connected to memory. Many, many times I've opened a McClone's tin, and my mind immediately goes back to open a a, a Dunhill tin. There's so, so many similarities. Um, but now we're talking relatively recent, you know, like 2016, 2017. Those tobaccos are now history, but they're still relatively, they're recent, um, yeah. just not available at the moment. So I'm not as, you know, how should I say, uh, stuck in the past as you might want to think. But then on the other hand, um, somehow um, there's a lot of people who I really respect, and of course yours is one of them, but the general quality of available leaf is has um i think um degraded in the last four or five years so i will i i do think that the tobacco blenders and the tobacco manufacturers i think they've got a harder job now than the guys did in the 80s and 90s uh in the 70s i think the guys in the 80s 90s you know in those years uh, I think they had a relatively easy job because they had a they had a lot more options of where to find good tobacco or where to find the tobacco that they wanted. They had a you know. yeah. And, and in addition, the growers, um, according to one tobacco expert, I don't want to say his name, but the growers um, themselves long before the blenders ever got their hands on anything, the growers took very, very great pains and extra steps to make sure that their tobacco crop was ideal uh, for smoking instead of just, you know, treating it uh, basically like corn and, um, you know, just uh, doing the harvest and throwing it all in a big truck. Um, Back then, from what I've read, the tobacco uh, farmers were much more meticulous in the way they they actually grew the leaf. Um, and I'm going to have to believe this guy because uh, he, he truly is an expert, in my opinion. He was in the tobacco business for a long, long time. Yeah, well, that, so, goes, that goes back to when the uh, uh, that goes back to when there was tobacco auctions. And yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Better quality leaf got better money, so there was a bit there was a bit of a better incentive. Now it's pretty much contractual, uh, and it, there's no longer the big auctions. So yeah, and the and the farmers don't have the same attitude towards their crop. Yeah, but I was so, uh, so so in answer to the question, yeah, the older stuff is better. So, but when I got into when I got into this, and the first time I really heard the idea of aging tobacco was in two thousand two thousand and one, and I okay. and I started doing it on a you know on a limited budget. I would buy three tins and smoke two and age one, or you know I was I was working in, for Peter Stokeby then, so if I got an extra tin or two at a trade show or something, I'd put it off to the side, and I started slowly, very slowly, building up my my stuff. But all the years that I was in the industry, I was also having to smoke stuff that was either a competitor's to try to figure out what it was in the market and figure out what we could do like it or what we had that was like it. 
I had to smoke all of our own stuff just for quality control. And that goes all the way up until, you know, my time working for Sutliff and McBaron, where I was, you know, I was quality control and I was also smoking what the competition was. But I had a very limited number of tobaccos that I did not represent that I would go out and purchase because I am a narrow-minded son of a gun that has a very narrow wheelhouse of things that I like. And, you know, until McClellan went out, I was perfectly happy with my one tobacco. Yeah, that would I would I'd be I would have been fine if they stayed in business forever and I just kept smoking my one tobacco as long as you know as long as they didn't compromise and cut corners and get cheaper stuff I might have detected a change but I'm a narrow-minded son of a gun and you know out of the three tobaccos that I mentioned before they're all pretty much the same yeah they're all Virginia priests. yeah I I hear you um see I remember what what uh, fascinated me because I switched, as we mentioned before, uh, when, when, with the question on, you know, are are you uh, have your taste change? Yeah, you saw the light. Here. Um, back in, I started realizing the the uh, importance of aging tobacco back in '98-'99, and I remember it was you know a few years after that. It was when I smoked some aged Virginia, and I saw how smoothed out it could be, and it would lose its edge. You see what I mean? With a good number of years, that edge, um, some people call it tang, you know, but sometimes it's an irritation. It's not just a tang. It's irritating to the tongue. And I saw how when those things aged in Virginia's, because I wasn't smoking very much Virginia's, it was absolutely phenomenal. The the uh, the edge, the tang, the sharpness was was gone, <laughs> and I began to see, whoa, this aging thing is pretty damned important to pay attention to, and um, so yeah, uh, th- that's when a person realizes that an older tobacco is um, very often a more enjoyable tobacco, just like with wine, right? I've smoked, I mean, I've I've smoked. I've drank (laughs) wines that were over 100 years old. Uh Um, I've drank drank wines that are well over 50 years old. And um, some of them uh, turn to vinegar. uh, And some of them, well, I had a, Let's see. In the late 80s, I had a um, you can look this up if you're interested. Anybody on the uh, uh, can Google this Romane Conti. Uh, it's R-O-M-A-N-E-E. First word, second word, C-O-N-T-I. Legendary wine that I think I may have mentioned before is um, thirty five hundred dollars for a new vintage. It's so rare. Four acres four and a half acres in France and considered you ready the most valuable agricultural property on earth. I through some incredible stroke of good fortune was given a, a bottle of 1929 Romane Conti, which is considered one of the best three wines of the entire 20th century. I put that stuff in my mouth and I, 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 I tasted it, but the taste didn't stop. It went on 
and on and on for almost a minute. And I was in an absolute um, state of wonderment just contemplating this wine. It wouldn't stop tasting. So on the other hand, I had an 1875 Mouton Rothschild once, also in the 80s. And it was worth 15 bucks. And not only that, after it was open, 20 minutes later, it was all vinegar. And I was <laughs> yeah. fortunate to have it freshly opened because, you know, you don't, age, you don't make a wine breathe that's 100 years old. Um, so I've seen it really, really good. And I've seen it really, um, you know, uh, to be nice, unremarkable. But the point is, is that um, the one has to have a memory for these for for taste. I believe to be really good at this kind of thing. Otherwise, uh, a lot of people are going to say, "Oh, I had some of that stuff. It was nothing to me." Um, and they'll mention something like, you know, half and half or something like that. That. Um, and I don't, I don't want to criticize anybody, but one of the things that I learned from doing 50, at least 50 blind tastings in the wine business is that some people don't have the apparatus to make the discernments and the discriminatory, um, you know, ability to, to make differentiations in taste and to recognize what's there. I had a, uh, I remember I had a customer back in those days, and he was a very, very wealthy lawyer, uh, owned, owned a huge practice, and he would come in and he would spend huge amounts of money on our wines. And he was really a nice guy. And I remember one day um, we are uh, doing a blind tasting, and he rated um, a couple of uh, wines much, much higher than they should have been. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And I noticed, and that sort of hit me, oh, he, he's done this before. And <clears throat> so I sat down with him. I said, look, man, uh, I think I know something about your taste, and I'm going to lay it on you. And I hope you don't mind. But I'd like for you, you know, to just say something that I've noticed about your uh, favorites and the wines that we rate in the blind tasting series. He said, what's that, Fred? I said, you don't like complexity. You don't like <laughs> wines that have lots of finesse and lots of um, complexity and interactive flavors. I said, you don't like that. You like the big wines that have a huge hit, you know, bomb flavors, you know, like uh, Cabernet bombs and, uh, you know, various uh, Nebbiolo bombs, yep. you know, whatever. I said, so if I were you, I, you're spending way too much money on this, man. You need to spend money on wines that just have incredibly powerful, monotone flavors with no complexity. And he said, you know what? I think you're right. And I, he still was a customer, but he started buying those wines by the, by the case. And he thanked me. I can't tell you how many times um, because I helped him um, actually take advantage of his own taste preferences because at the time, I thought everybody would like complexity. But no, we have different flavor apparatus and when it comes to uh, perception and detection of subtle flavors. Sorry so, to go on there, but I think the same thing happens in the tobacco world. 
So basically what you just talked about for the last two and a half hours um, <laughs> was, was what I describe as the three different types of tobaccos in, in my world. All right. There is, tobacco number one is ones I like. Tobacco number two is ones I don't like. And the third tobacco, the most important ones, is tobaccos I'll actually pay for. And yeah. that's how I rank that's how I rank all my every tobacco because I don't pick up all these nuances and complexities and you know, rustic funkiness and an essence of rose hips and, uh, you know, a little leather on the backside and blah, 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 blah. I don't get all that. Sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, what I do like is, and I'll argue with you about tangy because I like tangy because <laughs> okay. I learned from a very, uh, one of the, one of the people that was somewhat influential in my smoking style uh, is a person whose last name is McCraney. And was yeah. influential in the selections of what of what vintages became McCraney's Red Ribbon. And this person whose last name is McCraney uh, said to me that <laughs> I was going to give him a tin of the original 83 crop canned in 1999 and this was like 15 uh, like five years ago so it was going to be like 15 years old and i was going to give it to him and say here you can have a tin of you know be like the old days and he said no nope, i don't want it it's too smooth he didn't like it after it aged for a while he didn't like it after it had been sitting around for two years he liked the tanginess in the fresh red virginias and i, I like i i totally hear what you're saying and i've heard people say that as well when I say tangy, I, I'm talking about the negative side where it's irritating. Oh, I, the more have, irritating, the better. I love oh, it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, in that case, then we are <laughs> we live on different planets. And now, now what I and I don't, you know, and I don't like perique blends after they've aged too long because then they get rid of that punch of perique that I like because the perique smooths out too much. Yeah, I'll I'll agree with you there. Yeah. What I what I don't like is young tobacco that's got chlorophyll in it, and that's more of an acidic or chemically taste that yeah. I call tangy. Yeah, get, um, but that's but that's a whole other category. Yeah, but we could go on for another seventeen hours, of which you could probably do most of that by yourself on this subject because you're all sensitive about being an old guy. Um. It's only because I'm an old guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that I know that I know I'm internally flawed and t and constantly trying to compensate for it. Yeah. So and I and I will say that uh, you know when when McClellan's went out, it did for me. It made me you know I knew what we were doing at Sutliff and McBaron at that time, but then I also had to start looking outside the world and and try to find stuff that I liked, and I did find stuff. So. There is yeah. tobaccos out there that I like, um, you know, is, but not as many, but not as many. There was, there was only one for years. So now I've got two or three, so I've almost tripled. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, but again, I'm a narrow minded, jaded one horse, you know, one, you know, one trick pony. And I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't need well, variety. By comparison, I smoke lots of different tobaccos to even today. Yeah. I don't stick to one tobacco. I'm constantly, constantly shifting. I have. And I even have a few blends that I make for myself, which, um, you know, I I don't talk about it just for me. 
Um, but, you know, some, so there's still potential for that. But what I use for those blends are stuff that was available a long time ago. I've got that. I've got that Virginia Perique that I made for myself. That's uh, uh, now it's probably two years into aging, and I won't look at it for another three years. But that's made made with some Sutliff and some old and some old Perique. So, uh, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so, how would you summarize our our discussion here? Psychologically speaking, um, any any speaking. You know, I, I remind myself that baseball, yeah, I was a big baseball fan in the 70s and into the 80s, and then I just fell out of love with it uh, because it wasn't new, fresh. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't my guys playing. Um, I think there is, there are really good products available. The trick is is finding the one that works for you and figuring out how to make them work for you. And I think we've got a much bigger variety now than we did back in the 70s and 80s because I've seen the catalogs from the 70s and 80s, and you had, what, Sobrani had, what, three different kinds? Yeah. And now... Oh, more, more than that, but, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and now we've got, you know, Cornell and Deal has 250 products in a tin, so there's multiple variations of, of items, so you can fine-tune exactly what you want. Yeah. See, and I think we uh, we obviously disagree, but I think you. But but at the same uh, time, I really want to be clear: there are some good tobaccos available today, mm-hmm. but not just not as many and percentage-wise as in the days of yore. That's that's how I would summarize what I said. And I think we're both right and we're both wrong and. <laughs> and but that's the beautiful part of it and we'll still yeah. and we'll still love each other in the morning um i i love you 24 7 brian thank you very much <laughs> and we will be back in just a minute hi i'm jeremy reeves head blender of cornell and deal we know pipe smoking is a personal journey That's why our small team of blending and production experts take a personal approach in every step, preparing tobacco products just for you. We source top quality leaf through the personal connections we've made around the world, hand blend that leaf, and carefully package each tin. Each product, from special releases like our small batch line to our most popular mixtures like Autumn Evening, are made right here in South Carolina by professionals dedicated to providing the finest of smoking experiences. Lighting up a pipe is an exploration through evolving flavors, thoughts, memories, and even dreams. From our hands to yours, Cornell and Deal tobaccos are your passport for that voyage, provided by people who, like you, value the journey. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And should you have any comments or questions regarding that last segment, please email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. If you have comments that you wish to direct at Fred, email them to me. I'll make sure he gets them. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And for music, thanks to uh, Dino, the musical director, the honorary musical director of the Pipes Magazine radio show. He sent this one to me. Uh, It's Jerry Lee Lewis, 
pipe smoker and it's uh, recorded in London where I was recently and the song is called Sea Cruise so here it is It's no use than just to sing the blues Be my guest, I got nothing to lose Won't you let me take you on a sea cruise Hooey, hooey, baby Hooey, hooey, baby Hooey, hooey, baby Won't you let me take you on a sea cruise In the big black jumping baby Won't you join me, please Hell, I don't like digging But now on a bend in the knees Got a hat on the rack I got the boogie-woogie like a knife in my back Be my guest, you got nothing to lose Won't you let me take you on a sea cruise the 
album called The Complete Session, recorded in London with great guest artists. That's Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, my God. You've got mail. You bastard. And remember, if you have a comment or question, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com or post it on the Pipes Magazine radio show page on pipesmagazine.com. And uh, this week we'll get caught up from shows uh, 495 and 496. And then next week, I promise, we'll get all caught up on the mailbag. We're going to do a big mailbag show next week. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but uh, going back to uh, with Fred Hanna four weeks ago, uh, Jay Everett writes, uh, great show. I, discuss- I enjoyed the discussion on hats with Ash. I wear flat caps pretty much exclusively and agree they work well for most weather and attire. I'm not really one for brimmed hats except for one straw hat my wife bought for me when we visited Lancaster, Pennsylvania on our anniversary, LOL. It's a great sun hat. Also, Mr. Hanna mentioned eating tobacco in a salad, which I've never tried. However, Shag Virginia Leaf, used sparingly as a spice, imparts a subtle smoky flavor to food. I've used it in sauces and in barbecue smoke box to great effect. There you go. You can uh, smoke your meats with your tobacco. Uh, and then Virginia Piper says, as somebody who occasionally wears baseball caps and constantly feels out of place while doing so, I found that discussion on the flat cap illuminating. I completely co-sign the sentiment that one should stop smoking when the bowl of tobacco or cigar is no longer enjoyable. Thanks for another great show. You are welcome. And I just realized this is uh, Ash and Fred Hanna again this week. (laughs) Uh, Appalachian Piper 92 says, thanks for a great show. Always love when Fred appears. And thanks for using my song suggestion. Was surprised to hear my name at the end of the show. Tony is the man. Yeah. All right, and our usual suspects, well, not so usual, but usual suspects. Uh, Dino says, I rarely well, I rarely wear a hat, but when I do, it's a tweed flat cap, as Ash described, or a Harris tweed trilby. In a serious Chicago winter, I may don a woolen watch cap pulled tight over my ears. I don't wear hats or caps as a fashion statement, but rather as needed. However, I really enjoy Ash's take on fashion for men. The discussion on tobacco moisture, cut, and smokeability was quite interesting and informative. I'm always amazed hearing the late, great Tony Rice play guitar. His ease, fluidity, fluidity, and awesome technique place him amongst the very best ever. I totally agree with your rantless closing. Thanks, stay well, and bon voyage, Dino. And then uh, Casey Ghost says... The opening was pretty good. With my hairline, I wear hats a lot and enjoy them. I have a couple of dress hats, a fedora and a Homburg, that are really nice. The fedora I use for when we go out to have a nice dinner, and the Homburg is used for very special nights out, such as the opera or a stage production. Your conversation with Fred was just very entertaining. You guys get along so well. The discussion of tobacco moisture cut and smokeability was highly enjoyable. Now let's talk about the music. (laughs) Tony Rice is a wonderful guitar player and a fair singer. Then you described him as a bluegrass musician and had him playing a song that has zero to do with bluegrass music. It has as much to do with bluegrass as it does with sewer systems. I say what the hell. Uh, Good job on the rantless ending. Hope you have a good voyage. Thanks, Casey Ghost. Yep, had a good trip. 
and we're back. Uh, and then uh, let's see, uh, show the the show from uh, March fifteenth with Charles Tyvet. Uh, Jay Everett says, I thought the musical selection was especially nice. You don't hear a lot of scripture songs made of the red letter excerpts from the Bible. Well done. And that's, uh, going back to our friend Dan Locklear's, uh, music. And then we have, uh, Dino says, great show prep suggestions at the top of the program. And yes, fellow pipe smokers come to the show, any show. I'm excited about the Chicago show. I'll be there too. Charles was a delightful guest and ENT who smokes a pipe that smoke, who smokes a pipe. Take that smoke Nazis. Uh, he spoke eloquently about his journey to our community with humor and insight. Dan Locklear is an absolute treasure. This new work is stunning in its beauty, uh, power and accessibility. I have my order in for the CD. Thanks for another always entertaining show, Dino. And uh, Mo Smoke says, Brian, great show this week. Good advice and prepping for a pipe show and an interesting guest tonight Tonight, in Dr. Tyvet. Uh, you put a call out for questions for future episodes with Rich Esserman, and I thought of one that might be helpful. I've recently arranged for my first commission with an artisan pipe maker. The experience couldn't be better. However, I couldn't help wondering if I could have made the process easier for myself and the pipe maker. Between Rich and yourself, I'm sure you've got lots to share on this subject. Perhaps a conversation that covers the do's and don'ts of commissioning a pipe might be useful, or at least interesting, uh, for your listeners. Uh, I've also got a, I've got almost a year to wait for my commission to be completed, but I'll drop you another update when it's done and share how things went. Take care, Mo. Um, Mo, I think I've talked about it, but I will add that to the uh, rich list. And uh, if anybody else has any experiences or, or advice, just let me know and I'll read them here on the show. And then Casey Ghost says a really good show. The advice on packing for a show, particularly the Chicago show, was spot on. I'm getting too old to go to shows, but I'll be there in spirit. Charles was a very good guest. He was funny and had a lot of input on making and smoking a pipe. Definitely of superior quality when compared to the rookies you had on for a while. <laughs> uh, this is definitely a guy who jumps in whole hog when he gets into something. Hope the cruise is going as expected and that you aren't having any unpleasant surprises. Uh, coming up on the rant a little bit. And then uh, one more going back to uh, last the uh, the. To the first show with Fred Smoke Ring seventy nine says, "Always a pleasure listening to Brian and Fred. Also enjoyed Ash's segment. I think I'll start by learning the names of the hats were, that were discussed. Uh, the tobacco that really opened my eyes in respect to lower hydration level was Tobacco Manil's La Bru La Brumuse, uh, B R U M E U S E. It comes in a paper package, bone dry, and still smokes great after packing it a bit tighter." Thank you for uh, another great show, Elon. You are welcome, and uh, sorry I had to punch that back in. All right, again, comments, questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And finally, iTunes ratings and reviews. Uh, thank you very much to Hutch1904, who wrote excellent show. As a new pipe smoker, I have really enjoyed listening to this show. It is super informative, but also very entertaining. Great job, guys. 
So thank you very much, Hutch1904. Hope 1904 is not your birth year, but I doubt it is. Anyway, again, comments, questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, and rant time's coming up next. There's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. For over 150 years, Peterson has welcomed all pipe smokers. It's the preferred choice of the thinking man and the everyman alike, and our workshop too is a place of hospitality and warmth. Hi, I'm Glenn Whelan, and for me, Peterson is a family tradition I've known since my childhood. My dad, Tony Whelan Jr., worked at Peterson for 53 years and has been my home since 2003. From sweeping our factory on a Saturday morning to managing our store to now steering our international distribution, I've seen the craftsmanship poured into each Peterson pipe. It lives in Jason's discerning eye as he handcrafts our silver accents and in Wojciech's able hands as he carves our rustications. It abides in Willie's grading and in Warren's papering. Peterson has welcomed us as contributors to its legacy. And it's a welcome we always extend to you. Cade Mielefolge, 100,000 welcomes, wherever you come from, whosoever you be. Yes, we are back from our trip. Yes, the cruise was great. Yes, visiting London was great, but the cruise was not without any hitches. Here are the two hitches. Uh, and these play an important part in the story that I'm about to tell you. One, we had very minimal internet connection whatsoever. It was uh, getting an email through was almost as good as just sending a, you know, putting a message in a bottle and throwing it out there. And our first stop got canceled. And our third stop got changed. So with that, yeah, fine. But here's the story. Uh, several crew members were from the Ukraine. And as we met them, we would talk to them and ask them how their families were and if they knew. And one lady in particular who was our hostess on board the ship, uh, her name was Yana. She was from Odessa. And she was supposed to get off the ship in Fort Lauderdale where we boarded, but they couldn't get her visa cleared in time. So she was going to go to the first port and then get off and get a flight to Lisbon and then on to Poland. Uh, anyway, Yana has an eight-year-old son who she was unable, during the crossing time when we had no internet connection, she was unable to get a message through to him and find out where he was and to see if they could get him. Uh, she was trying to coordinate getting him from Odessa to the western part of the Ukraine where he could stay with a friend of hers until they could get him across. Anyway, day six, she finally got a message that her son was safely out of Odessa in, in the western part of the Ukraine with a friend. And no, they would not let the son cross the border with the friend. Had to be with her parent. Yeah, with the son's with the son's parent. Long story short, nine days later, Yana finally got off the boat and got to Lisbon, spent the night there, and then got to Poland. And we found out at about day 14 of the trip that 
Yana and her son were safely in Poland. So I hope everybody is doing as well as possible. So based off of that, yeah, we had a great time. So uh, thank you all for uh, putting up with the four shows in a row. And I know that uh, I know that downloads have been great. Comments have been great. So thank you very much. Thank you to Ash for joining me. Thank you to Fred for joining me. And until next time. clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather happy gone all that time and could he bring me one lousy souvenir? Hell no.